0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Schisms in the United States under Donald Trump, a splintering Europe, and China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative to restore and enhance trade routes across 60 countries are combining to tilt the world in one direction, toward Asia, or at least that's what one man thinks. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, Asia editor for Reuters Breaking Views. The Future is Asian is a book by Parag Khanna, who runs a Singapore-based consulting firm. He recently swung by our offices in Hong Kong to discuss the thesis he published earlier this year and whether the unrest here, the trade war between the United States and China, or other disruptive forces could derail what he sees as the rise of the region's clout in global and economic affairs. Thanks very much for being here, Parag. Thank you. Uh, on a very rainy and uh, protesty uh, morning in Hong Kong, um, the title of your book is, is impressively self-explanatory for using just four words. And rare uh, for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, the future is Asian. But uh, tell us a little. I guess I don't know in at in in hundred or two hundred words. to sort of give us, tell us precisely what you mean by that.
1: I actually could have called the book The Present is Asian because if you look at the demographic and the economic data, right, you already have more than half the world population lives in Asia. More than 50% of global GDP in PPP terms is in Asia. So the present is Asian. Part of the underlying message is really about how our psychology has not yet caught up with this reality. And that's very often the case, right? We perceive power shifts as happening at our convenience, you know, at some later point in time. Think about all the geopolitical work that says, You know, eventually we'll live in a multipolar world. It's like, well, actually, we've been in a multipolar world for a while. So that's one of the central messages. The other is, of course, that we've been overly China-centric in our view of Asia. Asia, for any geographer, and bear in mind, geographers don't dispute what Asia is, right? Asia actually stretches from the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea all the way to the Sea of Japan and from Russia to Australia. So for the last 20 years, we've had plenty of books about Asia. It's just that not a single one of them has given more than, you know, five or 10 pages to anything other than China. So I had to correct for that, you know, and give this full picture of South Asia, Central Asia, West Asia, Oceania, and put it all in context. That includes putting China in context. So instead of having 90% of this book be about China, it's more like 45%. which yeah, is it's kind unique. Of,
0: yeah. yeah, it's unique in that sense. And I, I, I guess, I mean, you touched on a little bit there, but why did you write this book? Well, there's,
1: you know... There was a
0: couple of bugbears,
1: right? One is, again, this overemphasis on China rather than having a systemic view of Asia as a region. And my background is in international relations theory, you know, looking at regional systems. And the word system has a very precise meaning. It's actually a measurement of the intensity of relations between countries. And if you look back at the last 75 years, you would quickly appreciate that China didn't get to be China by itself. It followed in the the path that was blazed before it by Japan coming out of the post-war period and becoming the world's second largest economy through its rapid industrialization and modernization. Then the tiger economy is doing the same thing. And those were the first two major waves of Asian growth in the post-war period. China is the third wave, not the first. It's not the beginning or the end of the Asian story, right? China is in the middle. And China benefited massively from the investment that came from those previous two waves, right? Of course, the tigers, especially. Taiwan and Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and Japan and Singapore. And now there's a fourth wave of growth which is a big area of emphasis in the book which encompasses all the countries from of south and southeast asia from pakistan to the philippines that's 2.5 billion people jeff right that's a billion more than china now it's spread across a dozen countries right. But every one of these countries is younger than China in terms of median age. Most of them are now growing faster economically than China is, obviously, because they're poorer. But there is this broader integration process, and they are benefiting from the first three waves. China is investing massively in these countries. China is doing Belt and Road with these countries. Japan is investing heavily in these countries. So we have to understand Asia as a system. And China fits in the middle geographically as well as chronologically. But China is not the beginning or the the end of the story
0: because right. obviously a lot to unpack there and from the book the, the other question i just had broadly about the book is who's the book for well
1: you know i get that question with every book and it's sort of for everyone right in the sense that i write about the whole world you know i'm, I'm i never leave any stone unturned geographically or thematically i write interdisciplinary and sort of globally so in that sense this is very um you know, continuous with my approach, which is to explain the world to two people, but to pick a particular lens at any given time. You know, My last book was Global Infrastructure and Supply Chains, which reaches every corner of the planet. Here, it's about the Asianization of the world. I actually wanted Asians to better understand Asia. So, for example, when the Mandarin edition of this book came out, I spent a couple of weeks in China, and I told audiences, I actually wrote this book for you because you think the future is Chinese, but it's Asian, and you actually know almost nothing about Asia. Chinese know a lot about China, but very little about their own neighbors. That's why they have hundreds of billions of dollars still sitting on the sidelines and not sure how or where to invest it. And I want Filipinos to understand Indians, and I want Indians to understand Japanese, and I want Russians to understand Indonesians, right? That's Part of the audience, and the rest is, of course, the rest of the world that is being Asianized, every corner of the world. So, you know, I've got chapters about Africa and Latin America and of course Europe and the United States. Just how much more Asian is the impact that is being sort of imposed upon them or that they're receiving without even realizing it? And to kind of quantify and measure it.
0: And you lay a lot of the groundwork in the book with an abbreviated but rich history lesson, particularly from the Asian perspective. So we can't go through all of it here. but, (laughs) But I wanted to discuss the more basic notion. I mean, you say The future and the present are Asian. So tell us, what was the past then?
1: You know, this was the most tedious exercise (laughs) I've ever undertaken in my life. It took me about a year with help you know, to write just one chapter of this book. But uh, apparently it's been of some use because it is the history of the whole world of the last 5,000 years from an Asian point of view. And there's a couple of things that really struck me in the process or upon completion of doing it. One is that you can explain most of uh, world history of most of the world's people with very little reference to the West, right? Because you have to wait till the 16th century for Europe to have a significant impact on Asian civilization. So, you know, the subtitle of the book is Commerce, Conflict and Culture. Culture, right, So I use these three approaches, the, the the lens of the commercial history of the Silk Roads interaction, the conflicts among Asian civilizations, and of course, the cultural patterns and learning that has taken place across Asia. And again, so much of Asian history is syncretic. It's not these you know ri- rigid national boundaries the way we think of them today. So that really jumped out at me. And then, of course, just how much learning has taken place between East and West, because I don't want to scare people off. As much as the title, you know, says what it is, it's also a bit of a misstatement because from a with a geopolitical hat on, the world is very multipolar. You know, I go to great pains to say America is still a superpower, North America is still a superpower region, Europe still matters very, very, you know, manifestly economically and diplomatically. Asia is just taking its rightful place alongside the others. So this is not about Asia taking over the world, but it's about Asia is kind of going back to patterns that are familiar from its own history, right, of, again, Silk Roads and so forth, and how if you want to understand what what really shapes the lives of 5 billion people in the world today, you could do worse than look back at just those centuries prior to the 16th century when Asians ran their own affairs and how they're beginning to do so again.
0: Well, you point to, I mean, obviously, you know, you point to the idea that the United States is sort of fractured right now. Europe is also splintering. And then there's also this uh, Xi Jinping's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, this, this reinvention of the old Silk Road trade routes, as a catalyst for this era, you, said, yeah. you sort of point to that as a very pivotal moment. Why do you see that as a as a rationale for sort of Asia right. to, to coalesce? Right.
1: So, you know, on page one of the book, it does begin with Belt and Road. However, the, the deeper story is very much about what has happened in the last 30 years. It has been exactly 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, 29 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the story of Asian integration is not dependent on Belt and Road. It's been happening for 30 years. The day the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 was the day that cross-border infrastructure projects were jump-started again, and the new Silk Roads began to sort of be reborn. The 1990s, we think of the energy super cycle, right? West Asian oil and gas resources flowing across the Indian Ocean to the energy-thirsty, fast-growing economies of East Asia. That was chapter one. Then you had borders coming down, trade liberalization, cross-border infrastructure, pipelines. That was sort of phase too. Now you've got Belt and Road, which is a bazooka, right? It's amplifying this next phase. And I'm talking about basically what, how the next 30 years of Asia coming together will build upon the last 30 years. And importantly, it doesn't hinge on Asia being peaceful. It doesn't even hinge on Asia becoming supranational the way Europe is. Asian history and the Asian future is nothing like European history. It's nothing like Western or American history. You don't have to have peace between Asian powers for this process to continue. Over the last 3,000 years, Asians have found ways to balance their economic complementarities with their rivalries, and they're going to continue to do that, even with conflict.
0: No, it's good that you read that I actually have a passage from the book that I wanted to ask you about, because you write that, quote, the principal lesson from Asia's geopolitical history is that no one power's dominance has lasted for very long before meeting sufficient resistance internally from neighbors or both to dash its hopes of eternal hegemony. I mean, we're sort of seeing that play out right now with the way the United States is approaching China. It's happening with Hong Kong and China. I mean, so, I mean,
1: that's uh, exactly right. So again, we live in the moment too much, right? Everything has been China centric in our global economic analysis and in our geopolitical analysis, everything has been sort of G2 centric, US, China, new Cold War the reality is and you don't have to look very far you know beyond the next couple of years or even just to the events of the last couple of years to see that China was never going to become the world's next dominant superpower. It's so convenient for people to think about how, well, the 19th century was Britain, 20th century America, therefore there must be a number one. And I spend countless passages, you know, explaining how that's not the way history works at all. There is rarely a number one. There's not going to be a number one. You're going to have a multipolar world that we're already in with North America, with Europe, and with Asia as a whole. And Asia itself is multipolar, with China being one of those poles. And historically China has never dominated all of Asia, not since the Mongol Empire has one power properly dominated all of Asia, and that didn't last very long, and that was a nomadic civilization. And it was Japan that was the most recent power that tried to dominate Asia, and that failed spectacularly. So, It's not even something that China necessarily wants. That's a whole separate debate that I get into and we can obviously talk about for hours. But we also often confuse what a power wants with it getting what it wants. So let's assume the worst, if you want to, about China's intent. You could say the same thing about America in the 1990s and 2000s, saying America is out to become a hyperpower and maintain its unipolar hegemony after the Cold War victory. I don't know about you, but I served in Iraq and Afghanistan, so I know very well that an empire doesn't always get what it wants, right? You can also fail. And when you look at Belt and Road, people say this is a hegemonic plot. Well, actually, as someone who spends a lot of time in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Russia, Myanmar, Malaysia, all these countries are already pushing back. They're already pushing back. You can see for every instance where you think that China is getting what it wants— and establishing, you know, neo mercantile extraterritorial colonies, you're going to see examples of the opposite. The fact is that China is learning in a three-year period. From the backlash to Belt and Road, what it took the British Empire 300 years to learn, right? Which is that the natives have a voice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they have sovereignty, more autonomy, a right to say no. And therefore, you will not see a hegemonic Asia under Chinese dominance. And it's obviously baffles me, annoys me, quite frankly, that that is the conventional wisdom right. to project and impute a simplistic future that is not the way history is, you know, Right. Tells and so us. even
0: though it's not China dominant, you do suggest that there is. Some coalescing taking place. The question I have is because, you know, we we do see this splintering, whether it's India and Kashmir or China, Hong Kong, Japan and South Korea happening now in terms of current events. But, I mean, where do you see signs that Asia... Sort of has like some sort of common agenda or value system starting to happen. Right.
1: So, as I mentioned before, the last we have 30 years of evidence now around Asians coming together in complementary ways that serve their mutual interests, whether it's participating in Belt and Road or liberalizing trade or also movements of people, business travelers, plugging labor shortages. Remember that in Asia, you have energy rich countries and energy importers. You've got tech rich and financially rich countries and those that are importing. So, you have endless complementarities within Asia, and that's what economics is all about. So the geoeconomic agenda in Asia is rather cooperative, even if they're competing for supply chains and, and from, in terms of a technology arms race. All of those things are coexist. And I think that, that the maturity is there within Asia to keep up that process, even though there are geopolitical tensions. Now, again, over the last 30 years, and I've written about this for at least 15 of those 30 years, you've got Nine major conflict scenarios in Asia, Iran, Kashmir, South China Sea, North Korea, Taiwan, uh, Senkaku Islands, right? This is not new. Right. So because a lot of these are the legacy of the colonial era and the Cold War era, and they've yet to be resolved. And so, like I say, one way or the other they're either going to be settled, either through diplomatic negotiation um, or through conflict. But eventually, each of these historical legacy conflicts does get solved, and Asia moves on, right, into this future where they continue to build upon those complementarities. There's no evidence to the contrary, because for every tension you have, like a flashpoint, like a Kashmir, or a dispute between navies in the South China Sea, you also have evidence that they're finding ways around those things, that they are finding ways to mitigate and minimize those tensions, and to look at how they can sort of, you know, move beyond them in a mutually beneficial and even productive and and sort of way that that, that is economically most useful to everyone.
0: Well, let's turn to some of the economic issues, because you have a big, rich chapter about sort of where you see some of the economic uh, coming together, particularly w- between um, trade between Asian right. nations sort of becoming a real a real force behind that. How important do you think is quality governance like property rights, independent courts, which? Obviously, many economists link to long-term growth prospects to determining whether the future really can and is Asia.
1: You know, Asia is basically ground zero for testing this hypothesis because we've now graduated from the notion that you have to be a Western-style liberal liberal democracy to be a successful economy because we see too many exceptions to that rule here in Asia. But the one strongest correlating factor to economic growth and success is rule of law. Right, so what you're seeing is that more and more countries are realizing that they have to offer investor protection, that they have to have better corporate governance, that you have to have more predictability, transparency, independence of courts and regulators, and so forth. And they're doing that in order to attract foreign investment. So globalization is not just you know having transplanting or or offshoring your low value manufacturing supply chains to Asia, right? Asia is already getting all of that activity anyway. Now countries are saying, well, what what is it going to take to have our equity Listed and absorbed into MSCI, right, and to uh, you know tap Western capital markets so that it doesn't affect our uh, our current account and all of these kinds of things. So it's much more sophisticated conversation, and it requires them to mature from a regulatory standpoint, even if they don't necessarily democratize politically. So we have to have a deeper conversation where we decouple these things a little bit. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to rationally explain, you know, the rise of Vietnam, right, and and other countries that are clearly not going to democratize and China. Itself again, obviously. Right. And all the other countries where they're finding ways to maintain their political evolution on a totally different track from their economic evolution. So, again, we have to be non ideological about these things. And that's why I break things down in, the, in this book by democracy going on one track. And by the way, there has been significant political liberalization in many ways in Asia. And I'll get back to that in one second versus the um, the good governance aspects and democracy is one part of good governance but you can have good governance without democracy that's a that's an objective statement of fact from anyone who studied the worldwide governance indicators that the World Bank you know publishes and reviews on an annual basis with 36 indicators this is not the view of someone who's a anti-democratic polemicist you know one of the things I have to go out of my way to point out is that more people live in democracies in Asia than the whole rest of the world put together and I always have to remind people of that because in the the same way that we're so overly China-centric in our economic and geopolitical analysis, just remember that for our audiences back home, wherever they may be, certainly in the U.S. and Europe, people look at Asia. I confront this every day. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, people look at Asia. and All they see is China. All they see is authoritarian, you know, capitalism. And I say, hold on a minute. I was born in India. You know, there's 1.4 billion people there. It's a democracy. In the last six months of this year, we've had elections in Indonesia, the Philippines, and India. That's 1.8 billion people. It's very disrespectful to the 5 billion Asians to portray them all as being just, you know, sort of authoritarian countries. It's not
0: at all true. I guess also at the same time, I wonder how much of it do you see as Western investors sort of bending to some authoritarian rule in Mm -hmm. terms of they want they want access to Chinese markets, they're willing to overlook certain... And they always
1: have. So before China rose, it's it's not the first country that foreign investors have gone into from the West, and foreign investors have always preferred stability and electricity supply to the form of government. Let's be very, very clear about this. Those are factual statements. Investors don't even care about corruption as much as they care about stability, and they want a steady electricity supply. Survey after survey going back 50 years of Western investors as to what their priorities are in, in their destination, democracy Democracy Does not rank in the top five criteria. Right. So none of this should surprise anyone. So, yes, they prefer stability. China is a case in point. You can see that with other countries as well, where, again, even if there isn't democracy, even if there's high corruption, if they see growth, they will chase growth.
0: You know, I also want to jump to sorry. one other issue here that you, you bring up is that you say that Asia has become a wedge issue between the United States and Europe. Why, yes. why do
1: you say that? It's a big theme for me because, uh, you know, I grew up in a very transatlantic era. I grew up shuttling between the U.S. and Germany, you know, so I'm a child of transatlantic uh, relations. And We always used to speak about and write our papers about, um, you know, uh, a transatlantic unity and transatlantic policy towards the Middle East or towards Russia and towards Asia. And now I look and I see that there's a European approach towards Russia, Iran, the Gulf countries, China, India, trade, which is so different from the U.S. So I think what's already well baked into the real world, though, again, not our psychology, is that there has been a transatlantic divorce, right? And so I separate Europe very strongly from the US in this book and all my work, because I look at how Europe is saying, well, if the US isn't going to join TPP, that's their problem. But we're going to have an FTA with Japan, we are going to have an FTA with ASEAN, with India, we're going to have our own approach towards trying to reform China and get market access to China, obviously, without declaring it a market economy. Again, with Russia, Iran, you see a different set of policies coming out of Europe. And it's very simple. If you just look at the trade volume between Europe and Asia. It's much larger than Europe trades with the United States. Now, again, we grew up in this transatlantic economic era, era and system. But today, Europe trades about $500 billion more every year with Asia, including China, than it does with the United States. So the Europeans have already graduated past their looking West to the United States for their economic policy, right? They they know that number right. much better than the White House knows that number, quite frankly. And that's why Europe acts so differently.
0: Interesting. One of the other ideas I want to get to in the remaining minutes we have is that, you know, one of the more provocative ideas you have is that the Western ideals of liberalism are are either outdated or not necessarily suited to Asia. And you point instead to Singapore and you hold it up as sort of this example of technocratic leadership that really can be an example for the region. Does it I mean, is that an idea that's scalable?
1: I never want to say outdated about Western ideas. And it's a huge theme in this book to kind of contradict the notion that it's, you know, one size fits all or there's winners and losers. For me, it's all about, again, historical layers and learning. I don't think that democracy and capitalism go out of style, right, to put it simply, or freedom and entrepreneurship. What I see in successful Asian countries is that they've learned the lessons from having been colonies, right? They have learned how to manage an economy. They are part, look, a country like Singapore is technically, a parliamentary democratic system, obviously because it's a former British colony, right? So you see that the smart countries are ones that have taken the best of their historical experience, whether it is parliamentary democracy or whether it is a strong civil service, whether it is having independent courts, and they've grafted onto that or, or also reincorporated some of their own traditions right? in terms of you know, uh, maintaining a certain you know, emphasis on egalitarianism or a family values and the role of family in society. They 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 may have a conservative approach towards some aspects of liberalism, right, obviously, when it comes to say anything you want in public, you know, press freedom, these kinds of things. I don't endorse or condone those kinds of restrictions, but I do explain why it is that they're there and how Asians have a conservative approach towards some of these things. And now to bring it right up to this to the minute. I write about internet regulation, you know, and if you look at how these uh, countries in Asia have been able to benefit from what we call second mover advantage, right? They've looked at how fake news and foreign intrusion and manipulation of social media has had a very negative impact on Western elections or things like the Brexit referenda. They can now look back at that and say, well, we don't want to make those mistakes. So we are going to make sure that the tech companies can't run amok, that they are going to have to have filters and monologues on shore and that they're going to have to take down, you know, sort of uh, deliberately false content and so on. So what you're seeing, interestingly enough, is that countries like Australia or Singapore or other Asian countries have very similar policies towards regulating internet speech, even though they're very different political systems. So what you're seeing here is not a clash between East and West. It's about new and old, right? Those countries that are saying we've got new challenges on the agenda that weren't there in the 18th century when the US Constitution was drafted, right? How are we going to respond to the challenges of today in a pragmatic way that takes the best lessons from around the world, irrespective of where they come from. And so I'm not singling out Singapore per se, I write a lot about Singapore in the book, because again, you have countries all across Asia that look up to Singapore, obviously, it's their proximate example of a very successful post colonial country, right? But it and works so, in a very small way, well, right? So, I mean, it's, and, yes, and it works uh, with the caveats uh, yeah, that you've mentioned. You know, but it's, it's it's not about size at all. I devoted an entire previous book actually <laughs> to to explaining why it's not about size at all. Because when you're talking about governance lessons, you can scale those very easily. If you you know, I've looked at the Estonian healthcare system and digital identification. Right, you can do what Estonia has done and scale it to India. Right? So why do people say, oh, that's a small country, that's a big country? India is effectively the most populous country in the world today. They can have universal ID. It's not about the size of the country, right? You can digitize things and you can have a good civil service, whether you're a big country or a small country, right? Canada, Australia, and Singapore all have first-rate, world-class, professional civil services whose employees have PhDs or you know, degrees in management and use data and analysis to craft public policy. What does that have to do with the size of the country? As we well know, going back four 40 years, China has been learning more from Singapore than from any country in the world. So scale has absolutely nothing okay. to do with it. It's about ideas.
0: Now you do talk about, I mean, I'm still want to get back to this idea of like sort of a, a unified or, you know, loosely unified kind of region, which is really what you're getting at here. And I think but one of the things you write is that among Asians, there is no longer any common understanding of what it means to be Asian. So if that's true how will the continent come together with right. a unifying identity or power?
1: So a few a few things. You know, first of all, it's it's not a continent. It's just a region, right? It's the most populous region of the world, but it's not a continent. Eurasia is the sure. continent and and I think it's important to look at how Europe and Asia are converging despite their political differences because the birthplace of liberal enlightenment values is Europe, not the United States. Okay. And yet despite those differences, Europe and Asia, and Asia with very different politics are able to come together. The other thing is that, you know, I don't I'm not aiming at a unity among Asia because I go to so much to such pains to point out that Asia is the most diverse region of the world, right? The civilizations are utterly mutually unintelligible. I say this as an Indian who goes to China a lot and Japan a lot. Asians seem to have absolutely nothing in common and can't even communicate with each other. And despite that, they're trading more with each other than they do with the rest of the world. So again, there's millennia of history to explain how Asians are able to overcome their vast gulfs that will never be overcome and not have a union but have pragmatic complementarities. And that's all Asians want. Europeans have needed unity because they're smaller countries, they have been fighting over geography for centuries, and without some kind of a supranational mechanism to restrain that anarchy, you never know when the next world war will happen. In Asia, you don't have that problem. Indians and Chinese and Japanese, despite the skirmishes they have over micro territories that are very, very significant disputes, I don't, you know, I don't diminish that at all. And I, I talk about each of of those conflicts, you're not going to have a kind of World War I style escalation. You know, and, I, and um, it's very important to remember that the lessons of European history tell us almost nothing about Asia's future. The lessons of Asian history, however, can tell us a lot about Asian, Asia's future, which is that for most of Asia's history, it's been these vast civilizations that don't really fear each other. Right? Now, this is, there's an arms race in this region. They're defending themselves against potential encroachment. Right? They're not fools. They remember what happened with Japan. They rem- they've had their tensions with each other, but they don't actually need to dominate each other. Right, they're never going to become like each other, and so the mentality behind the geopolitics in this region is actually very different. So there isn't going to be an Asian Union ever, and they don't want there to be one. That's not what constitutes progress in Asia. It's a healthy degree of respect between Asian countries. It's mutually beneficial complementarities. It's lifting visa restrictions so that young people can move to countries that are old and need elderly care. It's uh, you know uh, lifting caps on foreign investment so that those countries that need capital can can welcome it. That's the stuff that really matters in Asia. So,
0: what, so in your view, what would stop the Asianification of the world? Or is it sort of unstoppable? We at a point of no return.
1: It's past the point of no return, right? And a lot of people say, oh, but what about Taiwan? And you know, what about South China Sea? And what about North Korea? And I say, what about them, right? Because the difference between the European wars of the 20th century that went global And Asian tensions is that Asian tensions are highly localized. If you have a conflict in the South China Sea or you have a border war between India and China or India and Pakistan, those things remain quite localized. Asians don't look at a situation where your enemy has attacked your friend and say, I am in an alliance with my friend. I must therefore declare war on a common enemy. Asians look at the situation like that and say, who can I make more money off of? (laughs) Right. So it's nothing like European history again. And so I don't think that even if you have two or three regional conflicts in Asia, God forbid, but even if you do, it doesn't derail the broader Asian growth story. If you look at a case like North Korea. Whether it's violently or peacefully, that country is going to be incorporated into this Asian system, right? One way or the other, kicking and screaming. But it's going to happen, right? One way or the other, the oil and gas and mineral resources of the South China Sea are going to come to market. Some countries won't be happy about who owns which islands at the end of the day. But that's what history is littered with examples of border transfers and settlements, you know. And uh, so there is nothing that's going to happen in Asia that's going to be the end of the Asian story. Again, it is so big Let's remember that even the notion that if China sneezes, everyone catches a cold. Well, we've been wrong about that, right? You can have a deceleration of growth. It's going to hinge on how trade dependent and how China Sino dependent certain economies are. But looking at their size, looking at their urbanization rates, digitization, financialization, you can't really say that a China slowdown means the end of the Asian story when two and a half billion people are growing on the back of these secular and technological forces.
0: There's a lot more to discuss, Prague, but I think we're going to leave it there. It's a fascinating uh, topic and idea and discussion. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Parag makes a pretty good case, but I'm not sure I'm entirely persuaded just yet that this diverse and multifaceted continent will come together to be a super regional economic and political powerhouse. There is no shortage of obstacles that could get in the way of the future becoming definitively Asian. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. The Exchange is produced by the amazing Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. Please remember to subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com. And tune in again soon for the next edition of The Exchange.